Acts chapter 27, verse number 1. Might help if I get on the same page, huh? And it was determined that we should sail into Italy. I'm sorry. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. And entering into a ship of Adramidium, uh, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go into his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when he had sailed over the Sea of uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against uh, Nidus, thank you, nurse, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete, over against Salmone. Thank you so much. Um, just build my HMO. And hardly pressing it, came into a place which is called the Fair Havens. Got me a blue one. Everybody's going to see that. All right. Anyway, <laughs> we get back to it here. Uh, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Uh, now, when much time was spent, when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. And said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, which is in haven of Crete, and lie toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. Paul has appealed to Caesar. You remember when he appealed before, appeared before Festus there and Herod Agrippa came to see him. Paul had appealed to Caesar. And so to Caesar he must go. And so Festus sends him, and he, along with 275 other souls, find themselves on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, I've not been to the Mediterranean, but I know enough about it to know that it is oceanic in its behavior. It's a big, big sea, very much like, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. It's not ocean, but it's a lot like it. And so the Mediterranean Sea had all the dangers that an ocean would and all the depths that an ocean would. After a couple of stops, Paul counsels them, but they ignore him, and the captain sets sail during a very, very dangerous time of the year, September, November, which incidentally and coincidentally probably coincides with our hurricane seasons here. They ultimately encounter something called a Eurocladon, which if you, if you look at the, the word in Latin, what it literally means, and we would be familiar with this here in America, it means a nor'easter. There's wind coming from the north and the east, and it forms a cyclonic storm somewhere between a hurricane and a, and a tornado. I think you, you probably best call it a typhoon. And these storms cause great damage. And the narrative that's recorded by Luke offers us a lot to think about for when we face life's storms. And so 
If the Lord will help me tonight, I want to speak on this subject. The doctrine of the storm. The doctrine of the storm. Father, would you help us as we look to this passage? May I rightly divide your word of truth. Lord, I want to be used of you tonight. If you'll help me, Lord, I certainly need it. And I pray, God, you'd speak to our hearts in an unusual way. God, we need you tonight. I need you tonight. There's some folks that are in a storm right now. There's some that have just come out of it, and there's some that are about to head into it. Storms are something that touch us all. So help us and speak to us and teach us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, and may he be lifted up. Amen. The doctrine of the storm. First thing we want to notice is that storms are predictable. They're predictable. Verse verse 14. But long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. Now, they didn't have all of the opportunities that we have today with you know, Doppler radar and satellite imagery and all that, uh, meteorological techniques, you know, they, they were very basic in their understanding of weather. And we know today that storms are pretty predictable. You know, we just recently had a tornado warning here in the area. It goes, I think, from tornado watch to tornado warning, and all the conditions were right to have tornadic activity. Um, but even so, you can't predict the exact moment something's going to show up or what exactly it's going to do or the path that a storm may take. But to a degree, storms like this one were predictable. Seasoned mariners knew all about these storms. They knew that they appeared suddenly. Not out of nowhere, but they, they appeared quickly. And the conditions and the timing were right for a storm of this magnitude now watch this they could not anticipate exactly when a storm would appear but they had been at it enough to anticipate that a storm could appear so with all of that said why did they sail anyway If they knew the conditions were right, if they knew the timing was right, if they knew the danger existed, why didn't they just stay there? Well, you know, the area wasn't commodious to winter in. Yeah, but that's still better than dying. Why did they do it? Well, we can get into they had a deadline to meet, they wanted to get their merchandise there, they wanted to get paid. We can get into all that, but can I just give you the basic reason why they they, they left? They ignored what they knew in favor of what they wanted. They knew the danger, but they opted rather to pursue what they wanted. Can I tell you something? Just like seasoned mariners, seasoned Christians knew all about storms and know all about storms. Take Paul, for example. According to 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's already been through three shipwrecks at this point. He knows a little bit about storms. He knows what happens when they go bad. This is his fourth, at least, that he's been through. And there's some seasoned Christians maybe even here. You know all about storms. You've been through a few. You know that they appear suddenly. And you know that the conditions potentially can always be right. 
for a storm. There is never a time in a Christian's life where we can take a breath and say, all is well, there'll be no storms now. Oh, no. The conditions are always favorable for a storm and will be as long as we live in a sin-cursed world. Okay. We cannot always anticipate exactly when a storm will appear or what form it will take, but I'll tell you what we can be sure of. Storms will appear. They will. Peter said something about this in 1 Peter 4.12. He said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Not might, not could, not maybe. It will. As though some strange thing happened unto you. We lose the advantage of prediction when we ignore what we know from the Bible in favor of what we may want for ourselves. Just like those mariners that left that that harbor, ignoring what they knew in favor for what they wanted. Christians do that all the time. We know what the Bible says, and we ignore it, and we go out into danger because we're after something we want. Now, that's not always why we're in a storm. A storm is not always because we did something wrong. But let's be honest, there's a lot of storms we find ourselves in of our own making. Storms are predictable. They shouldn't surprise us. Number two, storms have no prejudice. They don't pick and choose. Do me a favor. Just uh, We're not reading it out loud. I want you to look at verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 7, and there's a common word in all of those verses. Do you know what it is? Anybody? Well, let me count and see. Probably. There's a common pronoun. We. And the one we left out, verse number six, says us. Same thing. We, us. Anytime you see we in the book of Acts, who does it refer to? Luke, the writer. Anytime you see we, it means Luke is with whatever's going on. Okay. Now, was Luke a prisoner? No. There's no indication that he was. Luke was Paul's friend. More than that, he was his personal physician. He's on this boat on the way to Rome because he's with Paul. And when you're in a storm, there's really one of only two possibilities, one of only two realities. You may be in a storm because it is personal. It is something that that is directed at you or is of your causing or God's trying to teach you something, it's personal. But you can very well be in a storm, not because it's personal, but because it's collateral. Now, what do I mean by that? God forbid, if I were to do something so terribly dumb and awful that I created a storm of my pastorate in which I have to step away, that's not of my kids making, is it? But are, in the, are they in the storm? They sure are. See, storms don't have any prejudice. Storms don't pick and choose. That storm did not take any regard for who was guilty on that ship and who wasn't. Everybody on the ship went through that storm. Everybody on the ship. It's either personal or it's collateral. 
And many of us will endure storms that don't have anything directly to do with us. But it makes them no less real, it makes them no less difficult, and it makes them no less in need of guidance. So whether, whether you're going through a storm of your own making, it's personal, or God's doing something in your life, or you're going through a storm that's collateral, you just, man, you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Know this, we still need these principles. Because whether it's on you or not, you're still in the storm. We've seen a lot of people over the years, if you've been saved long enough, you've seen a lot of people that a storm comes and what do they do? They run. The storm's in my church. The storm's in my school. The storm's in my ministry. The storm's in my marriage. The storm's at my job. And so my first inclination is to run. I got news for you. Storms have a way of following you. And you're likely to find yourself in another. You see, storms are predictable. And storms have no prejudice. But you know what? Storms demand a process. They demand a process. Very often, the effects of the storm aren't as damaging as the effects of our own reaction. A lot of times, it's not what the storm does that kills us. It's what we do or fail to do. And the worst thing to do in the midst of a storm is panic. Oh, I didn't say it was easy not to panic. But the worst thing we can do in a storm is panic. We've, we've seen video, and maybe you've been in the middle of this, a hurricane's coming to some coastal town, and everybody waits to the last minute to get on the road, and what do you have? You have a traffic jam, and you've got a whole bunch of people that are in a whole lot more danger sitting on that road in their car than they ever were in their house. And sometimes we encounter a storm, whether it's individually, or as a family, or as a church, or as a school, or whatever, and it's not the storm that gets us. It's running around like a chicken with her head cut off because we're panicking. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, Let all things be done decently and in order. All things would include a storm, wouldn't it? The, the, the best example that I know to give you is COVID. COVID was a storm, and it was a long storm. We're still seeing that now, it, apparently, it's starting to, you know, crop up again, another variant of it. We know more than we used to, and I'll approach it differently than I did the first time. But it was a storm. The worst thing we could have done as a church ministry in that was panic. And I am so thankful that God gave us the wisdom and gave us some good counselors and gave us some good resources that we could use to not panic, but to weather it. A lot of churches did not fare as well as ours. We give God all the glory for that. What storms in your life? Don't panic. I know it's easy. It's hard not to. Don't panic. Storms demand a process. So those who survive in and thrive through storms always have a biblical 
process. So let's look at what happens here in this storm that Paul's in, and let's see what process they went through. Number one, if you're going to, if you're going to get through a storm, the first thing you need to do is you need to relinquish control. I get into real trouble when I try to fix things for God. Because sometimes I get this crazy idea that God needs my help. Or God's not moving on a timetable that I'd want him to. Look at verse 15. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. What's that mean? They realized they were out of control. So they quit trying. They quit trying to manipulate the situation because to do so would have just made their situation worse. And so they lowered certain sails to catch the wind in certain ways. They took their hand off the rudder, off the wheel rather, and they let her drive. Sometimes in a storm, the best thing is the hardest thing. And what's that? Do nothing. Can I tell you that I've learned this over the years, and I'm still learning it. I haven't mastered it by any stretch. But I am learning that sometimes the absolute best thing to say is nothing. Sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. And that that goes against our our makeup, doesn't it? We want to fix things, especially men. We want to fix things. We want to do things. We want to attack things. And sometimes that's not what's called for. Sometimes we've got to sit still, sit down and hush. We've got to relinquish control. They stopped steering the ship and gave into the storm. We must stop trying to drive and trust God in the storm. Take your hands off the wheel. Easy preaching. Hard living. Now, that doesn't mean we do nothing on the whole. It just means our attempts to drive the storm stop. Because you're not going to. Relinquish control. Then number two, do your best to reduce confusion. Verse number 16. And running under an island which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. What in the world does that mean? These ships had a little boat that they would, they would tow behind them. And they used that boat for a number of things. We've talked about the forerunner, how they take that boat and put the anchor in it and take it into a harbor. Sometimes that, that boat, it, just to save space, they'd have that boat pull in behind them. Sometimes they used it as a little bit of a drag to slow the ship down. But, you know, it was pretty common to have that boat, that little, a little dinghy, a little John boat-sized thing in the back there behind the ship. But when a storm came, the first thing you did was pull that boat up into the ship. For a lot of reasons. Problem is, what happens when a storm hits, and this one hit so fast, what did that little boat do? It filled up with water. And it now becomes a drag. It now affects the, 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 at, the attitude and the, um, the movement of the ship. It's a problem. They've got to get that boat up into the ship. The ship here represents us. The water represents the world. You've heard the old saying, 
It's okay to have your ship in the water. You're in trouble when the water gets in your ship. Christian, it's okay to be in the world. You got a problem when the world gets into you. You know. And what happens is we have distractions that fills us up with the world's water and drags us into confusion, and we have to remove or move everything that we have that's collecting the world and get that confusion out of there, reduce it. We have got to be single-minded. We can't be double-minded in these situations. And so anything that's adding confusion to you spiritually and that's drawing the world into your, into your journey has got to go. Reduce confusion. Does that make sense? hope so. Number three, the process within a storm. Relinquish control. Reduce confusion. Number three, reinforce your constitution. Now, what do I mean by your constitution? What you're made of. Somebody that has a weak constitution is is made of lesser stuff in some ways. I have a weak constitution when it comes to certain foods. I have a weak constitution when it comes to certain sites. We want to make sure and strengthen and reinforce our constitution. Look at verse number 17. Which when they had taken up the little boat, they used helps undergirding the ship. What it's talking about here, these helps were cords. And they would guide those cords off one side of the ship to the other. And they would bring those cords up on the other side and they would fix them to either side of the boat and it would hold the boat together. It would be reinforcing that boat. Because in a storm, that boat would twist and all kinds of things and it needed all the reinforcement it could get. When you're in a storm, use all the helps that God gives you to reinforce your life. Maybe godly friends, it may be godly music, it may be some kind of encouragement, it may be the assembly of the church. Take advantage of every help that God offers you to reinforce your boat when you're in a storm. All right, so we're looking at the process of a storm. You relinquish control, you reduce confusion, you reinforce your constitution. Number four, it's time to rank what's critical. This is a matter of priority. It's time to rank what's critical. Look at verse 18. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship, and the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. They looked at the ship and said, some stuff's got to go. If we're going to make it, we've got to prioritize, and we've got to get rid of everything we don't need. Verse 18. They got rid of the useless. Look at verse 18 again. And we, being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. What are they throwing overboard? Their cargo. You see, this ship was not just exclusively a, a, a soldier ship or a, 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 you know, a, um, a prisoner ship. This was a commercial ship that they hitched a ride on. So they've got all kinds of goods and, and cargo that they're taking to their destination, which is ultimately Rome. And they stand to make a lot of money off of that cargo. But when you're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and you've got a Eurocladon on top of you, that cargo is absolutely useless. You find yourself shipwrecked on a deserted island. 
And the only thing that washed ashore with you is a suitcase full of money. That money is absolutely useless to you on that island, isn't it? So in those cold nights, what do you do with that money? You burn it because it's useless. Storms have a way of reminding us what ultimately is useless in this world. You see, this cargo, one way or the other, this cargo is going to be on the bottom of the sea. The question is, will it be on the bottom of the sea by itself, or will it be on the bottom of the sea with all of these souls? It's going down one way or the other, so let's get rid of it. It's useless. Now, Christian, let me ask you a question. I've had to ask myself this question. When we're going through a storm, how often do we find ourselves holding on to useless things that ultimately are going to perish anyway? Yeah, it's a storm, but I can't get any closer to God because I like my stuff too much. I got news for you. Your stuff's going away. One way or the other, it's going to the bottom. One way or the other, it's going away. It may go away because the storm consumes it. It may go away because God takes it. But it's going away. Why not let go of it and give yourself a chance to survive? Useless stuff. Distractions. Bad relationships. Materialism. Habits and comforts. Things that when we get into the sight of Jesus, we're going to look back and say, why in the world was any of that stuff important to me? My goodness, the stuff that I thought was so important when the storm hit, all of a sudden, it just became useless. We're prioritizing. And we're getting rid of the useless. But you know what else they got rid of? They got rid of good things in favor of best things. Look at verse uh, 19. And the third day, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. What's the tackling? Extra ropes, extra sails, things that you potentially could need, but in this moment, All they're doing is weighing you down. They would keep a long piece of wood that could be made into a replacement mast or any number of other things. They all had to pick that thing up and throw it overboard. It was too much weight. But but what if we need another mast? What if we need some more rope? What if we need some more sails? If you need them, you're you're already going under. Good things, but for that moment, not what's what's best. And when we're in a storm, we've got to be prepared not just to get rid of that which is useless, but we need to prepare to get rid of those things that while they're good and permissible, they're not ultimately going to help us. Discerning good from bad, that's relatively easy if you're trying. It's discerning good from best. Rank what is critical. Be willing to do the tough work of prioritizing 
And I got news for you. When it comes to a storm and you're looking at your ministry or you're looking at your family or you're looking at your walk with God, there's nothing worth holding on to. Let it go. Or you, I promise you, will go down with it. So, we're in a storm. What's our process? We relinquish control. Got to give it to God. I didn't say any of these things are easy, by the way. Reduce confusion. Reinforce your constitution. Rank what is critical. Number five, reassess your circumstances. Look at verse 27. But when the fourteenth night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country and sounded and found it twenty fathoms. And when they'd gone a little further, they sounded again and found it fifteen fathoms. Uh, then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. Periodically they measured to see how things were going. Now, when you're in a storm, you dare not try to take control back from God. You don't want to do that. But that does not mean that it's not permissible to prayerfully assess how things are going. When we were in the middle of COVID, yeah, we didn't want to take anything away from God. We wanted him to control everything. But from time to time, we would assess to see if there's any changes that needed to be made, approaches that needed to be different. How many fathoms deep are we right now? What's the best way to do that? The best way to do that and to accomplish that is with godly counsel. Why do you think they call counsel sounding boards? People that walk with God seek their counsel. Proverbs 19 verse 20. Hear counsel. And receive instruction that thou mayest be wise in thy latter end. You want to make it through to the end? Get counsel. Now, let's, let's hasten to make a distinction. There's a difference between seeking pinpointed, specific godly counsel and just running your mouth to anybody that will listen to it. There's a big difference. But there is safety in godly counsel. Okay? So reassess your circumstances. We're in a storm. What do we do? Relinquish control, reduce confusion, reinforce your constitution, rank what is critical, reassess your circumstances, and whatever you do, please remain in church. Verse 30. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they let down the boat into the sea, under color as though they'd have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. How often have we seen it? A storm scattering the flock. Don't do it. When you're in a storm, you've got to stay in the boat. Let me just say something just as a matter of fact. 
obviously if someone is doing something or living in such a way that it imperils the church and is not at uh you know is not permissible or whatever certainly those those kind of situations have to be acted upon and dealt with but i want to make it just very clear as a matter of record never once never once have i looked at anybody who is going through a storm in and of itself and told them you don't need to come back to our church I've never said it. Now, if it's somebody that's causing problems and, you know, and and all of that, have there been times that I've sat down with them with with, with the backing of the leadership and said, it's time to get straight or hit the road? That's happened. Somebody who's hurting, somebody who's done no wrong, I've never once showed them the door because I know what the Bible teaches. And when you're in a storm, you stay in the boat. Remain in church. Never forget the ultimate benefit of a gathered assembly. Hebrews 10, we've been here many times. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Exhorting one another. The devil will tell you when you're in a storm, you need to isolate yourself, you need to hide, you need to get off by yourself, and that's when he's got you. That's when you're in the middle of the Mediterranean, drowning with nobody that can help you. Stay in the boat. I've seen too many. I've seen too many get in the storm and run and they drown and we can't save them. Have your excuses. Say whatever you want to say about me. But stay in the boat. Reassess your circumstances. Remain in church. Number seven. Remember to consume. Verse 33. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting and have taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. For this shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you, And when he had thus spoken, he took bread, gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer. And they also took some meat. Two weeks they've been without eating. And they're weak. And they're downcast. 
and they're discouraged and they're ready to quit. And Paul said, well, let's start first things first, eat something. They were weakened by lack of nutrition. This is certainly true physically, but it is so much the more spiritually. There are people that they're in the middle of a storm and they stop eating. They stop feeding off fellowship with their Savior and they stop feeding off the Word of God. Stay close to Jesus. John 6, 35, and Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Stay in his word. 1 Peter 2, verse 1, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may what? That ye may grow thereby. Storms demand a process. Don't panic. Relinquish control. Reduce confusion. Reinforce your constitution. Rank what's critical. Reassess your circumstances. Remain in church and remember to consume. The doctrine of the storm. Storms are predictable. Storms have no prejudice. Storms demand a process. And then finally, for Christians... Storms always bear promise. Verse 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. We're going to lose this ship. We've already lost everything on this ship. We're going to lose the ship. But not one of you is going to perish. Watch this. How does he know this? For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul. Thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. I do not know what storm you may be facing, but I know that for the Christian your storm bears a promise. What's your promise? Well, he promises you his purpose. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things, would that include a storm? Yep. All things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You know what else? He promises you his partnership. Remember we read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12? Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But listen to this, but rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye 
may be glad also with exceeding joy. Verse 19, wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. He's promised you his purpose. He's promised you his partnership. And he has promised you his presence. What he say in Hebrews 13? I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Never. Storms. They're predictable. We don't know when they'll come, what form they'll take, but we know they will come. They have no prejudice. They can either hit us personally or collaterally, but they will hit us. They demand a process. They call upon us to relinquish control, reduce confusion, reinforce our constitution, rank what is critical, reassess your circumstances, remain in church, remember to consume. And for Christians, when you're in that storm, remember, they always bear promise.